electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast Easy Come, Easy Go, shares of Robinhood dropping after hours after FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried shot down reports his company was in talks to buy the struggling fintech. So what does this mean for Robinhood? Plus, fueling up oil stocks leading the market today as the sector looks to rebound from a deep slump. But can the trade stay energized? We'll go off the charts to get some answers. And a coast-to-coast correction. One top economist is sounding an alarm for the housing market while he says things could get rough, quote, very quickly. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money, live from the Nasdaq market site in the heart of Times Square on the desk tonight. Dan Nathan, Courtney Garcia, Guy Adami, and Karen Feinerman. We start off with an earnings alert on Nike, the sportswear stock, volatile after hours. The conference call just getting underway. Let's get straight to Sarah Eisen, who's got all the details. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Melissa. Well, some relief, at least in the stock initially. Nike's numbers on the top and bottom line did come in better than expected. But clearly, Nike is dealing with some challenges. China, for instance, where sales there dropped 19%. Also, overall gross margins decreased and missed at 45%. The company blaming their a China issue, largely likely a markdown of inventories in China as much of the market was shut down due to COVID. As much as 60% of Nike's business was shut down at one point during the quarter. Another issue, the stronger dollar. Sales overall this quarter were down 1%. They would have been up 3% if not for the impact of the stronger dollar. And Nike's still dealing with supply chain and shipping problems, which have held back some sales here at home in North America, where revenues were down about 5%. On the plus side, Nike direct-to-consumer and its digital business are still going strong. Up 15% for digital would have been even higher if not for that pesky stronger dollar. On the conference call, which is just kicking off, we will expect guidance. We usually get that from the CFO on the call. And there will be questions, Melissa, on how the brand is doing now that China has finally reopened. China's been a key growth driver for Nike in the past few years. It's had some hiccups. First, there was some nationalist sentiment there and some of the boycotts and then these COVID shutdowns. Also, we'll be listening for anything on just brand heat in general. Nike has weathered COVID and these supply issues before on the back of a very strong brand, its ability to resonate with the consumer and ability to get pricing power as a result. That's going to be key for investors to figure out whether that's still going strong to determine whether they should look through some of these headwinds that are outside of Nike's control, like currency and COVID lockdowns. And just overall, Melissa, this is a stock that's down 30 percent this year, worse than the market, worse than the retail trade on anticipation of some of these issues. And bottom line, it was a nine cent beat. Sarah, thanks. Keep us posted. Sarah Eisen, who is out, of course, in Aspen. Um, Guy Dami, Sarah, I think the context of the move that Sarah had mentioned is important going into the quarter, that the stock is down tremendously, but still guidance is still outstanding. From 179 down to current levels. So here's the way I think you trade the stock. 106 was the prior all-time high way back in January of 2020 before the world changed precipitously. But I look at Nike the following way. Valuation, yeah, it's probably cheap compared to where it's been historically at 25 times next year's. This is what caught my eye. 23% year-over-year uh, inventory build suggests 
that margins are going to still be under pressure. So I think there's further room to the downside, but not a lot. I don't think you're going to get killed owning Nike here. I just think there's a better entry point. Karen, what's your take? I kind of agree with Guy. There was one thing in the uh, earnings that I was sort of curious about, which was there's an income tax benefit. I thought there would be income tax. I don't know if that matters at all. But one other thing that I think is important, of course, China and the read through not just to Nike, but to other companies like Starbucks, someone like that. But also, are investors going to care about a FX miss or not? It seems like we're kind of just uh, dismissing it. And I don't know, maybe that's the right thing to do. I'm not really sure. But that had been one of the things sort of weighing on stocks, this idea that, you know, the dollar is so strong. And then when they repatriate earnings from foreign company, foreign countries, that uh, they'll have lower earnings. So we're seeing that a little bit. Three percent, I think, was the change. Um, and but I think the street's sort of ignoring it. Maybe this was this was good enough. And the P.E. multiple, as Guy said, has come down a lot. It's still significantly over the market multiple. It should be. It's a premier company. I don't own it. The question to me is just how much over the market multiple should it be? I'd probably I'd rather be in Lulu. Yeah, I think it's it's not surprising to see that it beat es- estimates here because earnings revisions came down so strongly here over the last couple of weeks. But I think what's going to be really important to look at for Nike is really what is their guidance going to be? Because I think when we look at the consumer, seeing are they still spending on something like sneakers, which are arguably like a high ticket item for so- some of your consumers out there. I think it's really going to go to show that with some of your other companies' earnings here looking forward, is the consumer still strong? So I think that's ultimately what the markets are so worried about. Nike itself, um, I really like that it's still priced um, well below its five-year average when you look at its price to earnings. It could still have some ups and downs as China's reopening, but long-term, it's still a really good company that's pretty cheap right now. So I think it'll be a longer-term opportunity. Yeah, two words, constant currency. I think that's going to be something that's going to be a theme of Q2 earnings. And, you know, when we think about, Mel, you just brought up the point about, you know, currency impact to U.S. multinationals. Microsoft, what, less than a month ago, they pre-announced a quarter. We were all kind of scratching our heads. They were blaming it on currency. It didn't seem like it was that big of an impact um, for a company that does that sort of revenue. So we're going to hear that a lot. And I think that, you know, this company late cycle doing this, saying this is really important, what their guidance is going to be. It might kind of set the stage for Q2 um, earnings in general and what people are going to get comfortable with as we think about a period of time right now where visibility is poor on multiple fronts. So it's not just these headwinds like a strong dollar or COVID shutdowns, but there's a lot of cross currents too. Shouldn't there be, I mean, we're all looking for the, for the conference call and the guidance, of course, but for China, you would think that things would be in a complete upswing, that the mm-hmm. guidance that they would get for China would be you know, unbelievable because of the reopening, plus all these measures to help the economy, right? I mean, all these things, we've seen a tech rally in China, and that's got to get people feeling pretty good. You would good. think, right? And it's interesting, if Tim were here, he's clearly not. No, but if yeah. he, he would say that, you know, Nike's still a North American story. I mean, they did north of $5 billion in North America. It's only $1.5 billion in China. So as much as that's a growth engine, this is still a North American story. So unless they get their act together here in terms of sales, in terms of margins, it's hard to get your arms around the stock. I understand what you're saying 100%. If there's going to be this reopening in China with that potential growth driver, this stock becomes very cheap at 25 times. I just don't know if we're there yet. But the notion that we are no longer locked down in that part Mm -hmm. of the world is good for supply chain issues. And that had been a worry by analysts, at least, in terms of feeding North American supply and demand, um, that supply chain issues would prevent that from happening. And so we'd see a a muted uh, level of sales in North America simply because they can't get the product here. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's going to continue to be a story here. I think there's going to be pockets of, you know, some of these uh, situations that kind of ease. I'll just say this. Sarah mentioned, you know, that China was down 19 percent um, year over year. And she also mentioned that there was kind of a nationalistic pushback a little bit. And I think that's something that we might start to see increasingly so. You might see it with an Apple, you know, like there's Starbucks. Little, yeah, and Starbucks. So, so there's a lot of U.S. multinationals that I think, you know, are not out of the woods. And I don't think they have a lot of clarity because they don't have situation in Europe or the situation in Asia that looks anywhere like it did in 2019 before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, well, we got some breaking news here on the banks we want to get to announcing their first post-stress test capital distribution plans. Leslie Picker has been watching them all come out. Leslie, what's the latest? Hey, Melissa. So broadly speaking, we're seeing a few of these firms increase their dividends, not much in the way of new buyback plans, with one exception, which we'll get to. Uh, just crossing the wires is Wells Fargo, which increased its dividend to 30 cents from 25 cents per share. That's about a, a 20% hike. That's a quarterly dividend as well. Noting that the company has, quote, significant capacity to execute on common stock repurchases. So we could see more on that front, perhaps in the future. Uh, Morgan Stanley announced it planned to increase its quarterly dividend. Uh, that was about an 11% boost by Morgan Stanley. And the board authorized a new $20 billion multi-year share repurchase program. So that's that one exception on the buyback front. Uh, Bank of America increased its dividend as well. That was a small increase by about 5% uh, for that dividend. And then they mentioned that they had just renewed their buyback program in October 2021 and have about $17 billion left to deploy there. JP Morgan said that it intended to maintain its dividend at $1 per share in light of higher future capital requirements. So that goes into this idea of some banks perhaps wanting to kind of hunker down and make sure that they're being conservative with their balance sheet. Also, uh, JP Morgan had what's known as a higher stress capital buffer set by the Fed, which does limit their ability to return capital to shareholders. So they're still coming out. Melissa will let you know the additional firms and what they are uh, reporting. But interesting so far, we are seeing most firms kind of tick higher in this news. Um, Morgan Stanley, though, seeing the biggest boost among the big banks we follow up about 1.9% right now. Back over to you. Leslie, thanks. Keep us posted. Leslie Picker. Kara, does it make you feel better or worse about what we should expect for the economy that JP Morgan is keeping their dividend pat? I think it doesn't really follow through. You know, we talked about this issue of them uh, having this um, other comprehensive income markdown, which is when rates uh, move up. Their assets are priced lower, which does actually hit the buffer. So I think I think they've telegraphed this. Morgan Stanley is interesting, but it's a very different kind of financial enterprise. It doesn't have the um, the same loan portfolio that the other big money center banks have. Obviously, it's a huge uh, asset management business, which is doing well. So happy to see that. Um, I, I can't help but think, though, it gets in Jamie's craw a little bit that Everyone else could at least raise their dividend a little, and he can't. But, at, you know, at four bucks, it's still a very decent yield. Well, I think that he, I think that he comes out looking pretty good. You know, if you're, if you're the guy who says Superstorm Sandy is a possibility, if you go and raise your dividend, that seems kind of reckless to me. But um, I, I don't know. 
Guy, what do you think? I think that he's watching right now. I think that he should call into the show and talk to Karen because clearly that's what's going on here. I think that Morgan Stanley, $20 billion off what their market cap is, what, $140 billion? That's not insignificant. That's Morgan Stanley saying our stock is too cheap here. We're going to put money to work where we think it makes the most sense in three very distinct business um, sectors that they do extraordinarily well in each. I think Morgan Stanley, to me, out of what I just heard from Leslie, is the most interesting on the list. How about you, Court? Yeah, actually, I, I think the banks are going to be really interesting to look at here. I think your values in general, so your energies, your banks, your health care, I think ultimately that's what's going to continue to do well in this economy. And I think seeing them raise their dividends is showing that strength that they have. I think seeing them come out, too, is they really have a good understanding of um, how the consumer is doing from a different level. And seeing them come out with their earnings, I think, is one thing we're really going to be watching for. Doesn't this make you feel better about the economy, Dan? Not really. I mean, like, you know, I, listen, I'm actually more bearish on the economy near term than I am on the market in general. I do think it's going to be continue to be a tough patch um, for the market. And, I, and we talked about this last week before the stress test, the way the banks were leading to the downside, the relative underperformance was really troubling. And that is saying more about the economy than I think the stock market. And I think that's why it makes sense to pay atten- attention here. When you say, well, how is J.P. Morgan, this whole group, not raising their dividend at a time where some of their competitors are? Are, you know, actually raising their their buybacks, and I think it goes back to also what we talked about. These money center banks, they're gonna, they may have to start taking reserves against, you know, credit reserves again after unlocking them over the last year. And so I look at Morgan and Goldman, and guy, you brought this up, I think, mid last week. They're gonna trade their way out of this. That's what they do. Right. You know, a Goldman Sachs most definitely, and Morgan Stanley. When you think about that buyback and the companies that they have bought over the last couple of years, they seem to be very comfortable in the position that they're in right now. I mean, maybe there is a story that could be told or, you know, something that can be gleaned from who is increasing and by how much, to Dan's point, Bank of America, that was a smaller dividend increase, Karen, J.P. Morgan, there's no dividend increase. Maybe these are the types of models you do not want to be in in this economic time. Well, I'm in them. That may, those may be two very different things, though. Do you want to be in them and are you in them? Yes, I am. Clearly, it hasn't worked so far. But... Um, You know, I think that I I really wouldn't read too much into this dividend thing. I do think they they telegraphed it. And, you know, if we see rates move lower, then they will have the flip side and build additional capital. But I think, you know, J.P. Morgan has laid out very clearly they're going to spend a lot of money. Right. And they're going to look to do acquisitions and they're going to um, they are going to do buybacks. But I so I don't see them increasing the dividend unless they have more clarity, which I don't think they'll have, though, in, in the near one or two quarters. All right. Meantime, check out Energy leading the market today, jumping nearly 3%. The group trying to stage a rebound after a rough couple of weeks. Our next guest says the recent drop could be a good signal for the space. Let's go off the charts with Oppenheimer's Ari Wald. Ari, what are you looking at? Yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at the sell-off we've, we've seen in the sector in recent weeks. I think it's telling that the bear cycle has now come for the leaders. It was the one sector that was still holding up, holding trend, holding their 200-day average. Uh, I do see that as a sign uh, uh, with, as the leaders surrender that we're closer to the end of the decline uh, rather than the beginning. Uh, with that said, if, if the S&P 500 is going to form a W pattern over the coming months, which is to say it's going to form a double bottom and there's going to be some backing and filling here, uh, I think energy needs it as well. Here are the support levels I'm watching. comes in at the 200-day average first at $67.00. Uh, and then if you were to overshoot here, if things get pretty ugly in the third quarter, $61 does mark the January breakout above the 2020 peak. But listen, the sector is still down 21 percent from its 
recent high. And I think that long-term trend does indicate you want to buy these pullbacks. So at the very least, let's key on some of the best of the best in the sector, stocks you want to um, that I think could withstand some additional near-term volatility that you want to own for the long term. And the standout for us is ConocoPhillips. Why? It's one of the few stocks in the sector that already broke above both the 2014 and the 2018 highs. The XLE wasn't able to do that. So to us, that's an indication of long-term leadership and one of the names to be looking for on this pullback in the sector. Larry, it's interesting, and I'm not looking to play stock market here, but the OAH went from 317 to 220 in seemingly six trading days. It was not commensurate with either the move in the commodity or the broader market. So it seems like people were selling first, asking questions later, which leads me to believe in our vernacular, a lot of choice in the energy space. Does that concern you at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, and it's a sector that just had this extreme run up the year over year rate of change at its highest point up at 100 percent. That that year over year has only gotten above 60 percent a handful of times looking at a century of data uh, for that sector going back to the 1930s. So some additional time is required in the sector, in the market overall. I'd follow that roadmap, even tech coming off the collapse in 2003. Uh, financials in 2009 would be an example, too, after this extended decline energy had for a number of years. This parabolic rise, it would be historically unprecedented, unprecedented for it to continue at that current pace. So, which is just to say, expect the returns to start to slow here. Pullback should still be bought, but you're not going to see this, the pace of gains continue as it was. Before we let you go, Ari, can you give us your quick take on, on what we're in for in terms of the markets and rates? Yeah, I think the key positive for, let's start with the market, is just how washed out it is. Nobody loves it. Uh, nobody likes it, or based on the sentiment polls, at least, the II bull bear ratio at 0 0.6. Uh, so that is an argument for the long term. Typically, when you see the sentiment pendulum swing to such extreme levels of pessimism, good long-term buying opportunity, that extreme pessimism can linger over the near term. So perhaps an indication too late to sell. Is it too early to buy? I think utilizing a more conservative approach where you're waiting for the base building makes sense, especially when you consider midterm year seasonals as, as well, leads us to believe the market should base through the, uh, through the third quarter, lead to a Q4 upturn in the cycle. And yes, I think you need rates to top out here too, the 10 year testing that very important 2018 high at three and a quarter. I think if you get a top in rates, the growth stocks will find a floor and that'll act as your uh, bottom for the equity market too. Ari, great to get your take. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Ari Wald of Oppenheimer. Dan, what do you think? You know, interesting on the energy stuff. Uh, you know, we were here a couple weeks ago. It was June 8th, and everybody couldn't stop talking about Exxon making new all-time highs, broke out above for a brief moment above their 2014 high, and we were kind of like rolling our eyes. And you've had the call, right? I know Tim's been on this, that, you know, ride this energy trade, ride crude oil, buy the dips. But when XLE, from that moment, okay, we know that Chevron and Exxon are, what, about 40% of that ETF, it went down 25% in a straight line in two weeks. So here we are now at this kind of $70 level, and I know that some people think that, you know, it was just a lot of tourism, right? A lot of people just kind of crowding into this trade. Excellently probably lines up pretty well. You wouldn't be selling it right here, especially if you think that a lot of these inflationary press, uh, you know, uh, pressures are going to be persistent. So to me, Excellently could line up as a decent trade here. Off Funny of Dan mentions ExxonMobil, Courtney. Wasn't that one of your picks? Wasn't that your final trade? That was, yes. Yeah. <laughs> On yeah. June 8th? 
<laughs> no, a little okay. later than June. <laughs> Um, no, I, I still really like the energy trade. I mean, ultimately, you have this huge supply-demand issue. We're still seeing people are traveling. People are getting out and driving despite the fact that gas prices are increasing. That demand is not going anywhere. So I really think, yeah, these dips are opportunities to be bought. I think that's only going to continue if there's further dips. Just take advantage of that right now. Karen, what do you think is the best way in your portfolio to play inflation? Would it be energy or would it be something else? Uh, oh, that is a great question. I think, to me, it's high tech, uh, high multiple tech names, right? The higher inflation goes, the more the Fed needs to tighten. And those two, the correlation between those two, or the negative correlation is very strong. So uh, I, short IGV. All right, coming up, housing correction, dead ahead. That is a stark warning from a top economist who says the real estate market is due for a nationwide pullback. We've got the details on that big call next. Plus crypto's recent savior, Sam Bankman-Fried shooting down reports he's looking to buy Robinhood, what that could mean for the fintech stock when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Robinhood giving back late-day gains after Sam Bankman-Fried shot down reports his crypto exchange FTX is in talks to buy the company. In a statement to CNBC, he said, We are excited about Robinhood's business prospects and potential ways we could partner with them, and I've always been impressed by the business that Vlad and his team have built. That being said, there are no active M&A conversations with Robinhood. 
It's pretty clear to me. Bankman Freed's company has emerged as a sort of lender of last resort in the crypto space recently. Just last week, the company provided financing to crypto lender BlockFi. Bankman Freed's quant trading company also provided a loan to Voyager Digital. Crypto winter or maybe crypto opportunity, Dan. So you said the lender of last resort. It looks more like the uh, island of like misfit crypto toys or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, like when you think about it and, and when he says that he's really impressed with that business, I mean, obviously he's built a very good business. He's taken that personal stake in Robinhood. I don't know what's so great about that business. They had, I mean, guys going to say the hair, right? Is that what we going to say? The hair. But they had that hyper growth. And then they literally last year during the biggest retail frenzy that's ever existed in the stock market, they were trading Dogecoin like for... You know what I mean? Like that was how they made money. So to me, I don't find it particularly interesting. I don't know why he couldn't replicate that if he wanted to do uh, stock trading or stonk trading or whatever the kids call it today. Yeah. Goldman upgraded the stock to neutral from yep. sell. I mean, that was good for them because they but they took their price target from eleven and a half down to nine and a half. So they nailed that one, I guess. I think this is a stock you trade for opportunities like exactly what you saw today. But I don't see the long term thesis here. I just don't get it. And I've been saying this from day one. And you can at me all you want, Mel. But say it. Go ahead. You know my line. The only thing innovative about Robin Hood are two things, please. I don't know what you're going to say. The hair and the name. That's it. After that, I mean, you tell me what they do differently. Robin Hood's a pretty cool name. It's a really cool name. You don't think so? That's what makes Marcus. But their hair is pretty good, you have to admit. I mean, Um, those cats got great hair. It's interesting. The Goldman note was interesting because there were a lot of concerns about the business model for Robinhood. And they're saying that Binance, even though it has a small percentage of total volumes in terms of trading, it underscores the notion that fee compression is on the way, that it is here and it's going to eat away at Robin, be a pressure at the very least on Robinhood's business. And that gets to Guy's point that maybe there is nothing innovative. Despite being in the ARK Innovation Fund, Karen, maybe there's actually nothing innovative about this company. What do you think? Well, I guess that the the innovation was the way they attracted, um, you know, the meme stock investor. Not that there aren't any others. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of investors. I mean, if you read that report about what happened the last January um, with GameStop, that was kind of very disconcerting. But, but all that having been said, it's interesting to me that the stock is trading at about book value. Right. So that's interesting. Now, granted, they are losing hundreds of millions of dollars. So that book will be declining each year. But right now, at book value, you could buy that entire investor base. That's sort of intriguing. I get why uh, FTX is interested there. They own a very big position, 7.5%. I think that it, they should be thinking about it, you know, that, that is there something to do. And if they're thinking about it, others have to be thinking about it as well. So I actually, there's smoke there. I don't know if there's fire or just if the business is burning up, if that's what the smoke and the fire are all about. I'm not really sure. But I do think it, it's intriguing. Yeah, I think I, I do have some concerns here from the longer term standpoint. I have to agree with your point there, where ultimately, and, and this was actually noted in the note from Goldman, that they really don't have a recurring revenue, which ultimately I think they're going to need from a longer term standpoint. And they're losing customers. I think they're down, actually, it's close to 2 million customers from a year ago today. And they ultimately, they had that wave of retail investors, which they rode during COVID. And if they're not able to capture that base again or somehow get other customers in there, and I don't see how they're going to do that right now. I just think it's hard to, to look at that as longer term opportunity. Hard to do in a bear market market, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. 
housing hardships, a top economist calling for a coast-to-coast -coast correction in the housing market. His advice to first-time homebuyers next. Plus, sweet on semis. Options traders dipping into the chip space as one name lights up. So could this be a quality trade? The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pending home sales breaking a six-month losing streak in May, rising almost a percentage point last month versus April. The Northeast seeing the biggest gain, up more than 15%, but the overall figure still down 14% compared to the same time last year. Our next guest warns a housing correction is dead ahead. Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to have you with us. Thank you, Melissa. Um, it's an important distinction. You're calling for a correction and not a crash. Um, what prevents us from, from seeing a crash? Is it just that the underwriting this time around is a lot better, a lot different? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Uh, I think the underwriting's been very good. Credit score is very high, and that makes it much less likely we'll see defaults or as many, many defaults, and you need those distressed sales to get a crash. Uh, and also, the market itself is very tight. I mean, the vacancy rate across the housing stock is at a record low or close to, and that's in strong contrast to prior to the the bus back a little over a decade ago when we were just uh, rolling in uh, too many homes. So lots of big differences between now and then. So not a crash, but a correction. If we see the 10-year yield sort of, you know, top out, at least in the short term, at three and a quarter percent market, I'm not asking you to, you know, play forecaster, but does that impact your your call for some sort of a correction? Well, Melissa, I do that for a living. You can you can do that all day <laughs> long. You can, ask, you can ask me for all kinds of forecasts. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, we're at a, on a third... 30-year fixed rate loan, we're sitting around 6%. You know, that's a high and obviously a real problem for uh, first-time home buyers and trade-up buyers because, you know, their monthly mortgage payment today, they buy a typical home, is much higher, is several hundred dollars more a month higher than it was a year ago. And so that that's that lot loss of affordability is behind the, the correction I see. If we stay around six, I think the market will ultimately adjust and we get that correction. Um, you know, if it goes much higher than that, then we'll get, you know, a much more significant pullback in the housing market, weaker home sales, weaker house prices and, and home buildings. Six percent we can we can digest. It's not going to be comfortable, but we can digest it. That That's consistent with the correction. Mark, I think it was Wednesday, the 14th of June, Jerome Powell on his way out of that presser, basically, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, 
warn millennials, you know, now might not be the best time to be buying a home. I mean, it seems to me that the Fed is doing everything they can to throw some serious cold water on what's been a pretty extraordinary housing market. If they tell you that, you got to listen to them now. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. I missed that. That's uh, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, the Fed is working really hard to slow the economy's growth rate so we don't blow past full employment and exacerbate inflationary pressures. And that's through higher rates. And that means the most rate sensitive sector of the economy, that's housing, is going to feel the, the, the first of that, the first effects of that. And we are already seeing that and we'll feel the brunt of it. So this is to script, at least so far, exactly what the Fed would want to see. It's Karen. Thanks for coming on, Mark. Do you, I have a question about we've seen big corporate interests in housing, um, you know, the Blackstones of the world yeah. buying houses and making them available for rent. Do you think they are done with that now that rates have moved up and maybe the market's sort of topped out on prices? Or do you think they're still there because the value proposition of high rents is here for a while? I, I think they're here to stay. Uh, I think this is a business model, uh, you know, that that works a longer run. And there's a lot of capital sitting out there. The, these, these institutional investors have raised a, a lot of uh, funds that they're going to deploy. Now, I suspect they're going to pause here. I, I, you know, I don't think they're going to sell I mean, because they're long-term investors. They may not buy in this environment. They may, be, they may wait to see you know, how things shake out and probably make some sense, right? Because I do expect house prices in many of these markets where they're most active in the South and the West to experience some price decline. So you know, I think it would make sense to, for them to pause. But I think these are, are long-term players. And by the way, going back to Melissa, uh, Melissa's first uh, question, that's another reason why there won't be a crash because you've got these investors in there that are, you know, long-term investors. They're not, they're not flippers. They're not looking for a quick buck. They're, this is a business model. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure, anytime. Mark Zandi of Moody's. Um, isn't last week, Karen? I, you you bring up the point about these big investors being into single-family homes. Starwood uh, announced that it was looking to sell two portfolios of single-family homes, which got me to thinking about this problem. If if it does become a problem of these investors selling those homes and what that does to the market. Yeah, right. I mean, they've been the ballast. Uh, well, maybe didn't need a ballast during the pandemic, right? There were tons of buyers everywhere, and people are employed, and you could work from anywhere. All of that. I, I, I am concerned that that big corporate presence declines and that will tilt the you know, supply demand dynamic and therefore prices more. Yeah, um, we've got some more details here on uh, banks capital plans. Let's get to Leslie Picker for the very latest. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, as expected by Wall Street, we're seeing kind of a divergence between banks that are more Wall Street investment banking sensitive. They're returning much more capital to shareholders uh, than those that are more commercial bank sensitive. Those that take deposits, make loans, have much more business in that area. Uh, for example, Goldman Sachs, uh, they came out and said that they plan a 25% boost to their dividend to about 250 a share. That stock is up about one percent seven uh, percent on that news, kind of matching to some extent what we're what we saw at Morgan Stanley. They boosted their dividend by eleven percent and then authorized a new twenty billion dollar uh, buyback program beginning in Q three. On the flip side, you have Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Bank of America, which had somewhat muted plans announced today. Citigroup crossing just moments ago saying that 
It intends to maintain its current dividend of 51 cents per share in the third quarter. That's similar to what JP Morgan is doing, maintaining its dividend at a dollar per share. Bank of America did hike its dividend, but just by about 5%, which is marginal compared to some of those investment banking plans. Now, the one exception of these announcements is Wells Fargo. They did decide to hike their dividend by about 20%. And the company noted that it had significant capacity to execute on common stock repurchases. This was all expected based on the Fed test results that Wells Fargo would be kind of more of an upside surprise among the commercial banks and the others could see more muted plans in light of those stress tests that we saw last week, Melissa. All right, Leslie, thanks. Leslie Picker. Um, Dan, this plays into the point that you were making before in terms of the business model allowing certain kinds of banks to return more capital. Yeah, and so depending on time horizon, it's going to be a theme, I think, that we're going to play out through the balance of this year here. I, I just don't find anything compelling. There's nothing fundamentally that these banks are telling you over the last few months. There's nothing that the price action of the stocks are telling you that they're saying that they should be bought right here for a move. I mean, like, you know, maybe you get this 5%, 10% counter-trend rally, but it just seems like we're in a market where it's going to be one step forward, two steps back, especially in these companies that or these uh, sectors that just don't have a lot of great visibility right now. And I'll just say one last thing, what uh, Mark Zandi just said, that he thinks it's like a great thing that there's a buyer of last resort for those homes. Well, until they're not there and then until your point, until they have to sell them. So I don't really feel like you tell me if Blackstone's trading at $70, you know what I mean? Down from where was it, guy? One, 148, 148 or what, something like sell? that. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm just saying. So to me, I just think it's all wrapped up into one big mess if things continue to go south for the economy. Glad Dan brought up Blackstone because yeah. I don't think it's coincidence. But we had Jay-Z on a while ago. Not that Jay-Z. Joe's idol Jay-Z. Yeah. Who was the original Jay-Z, as you know. And yeah. he talked about exactly what Dan pushed back on, the fact that, you know, Joe obviously thinks real estate's going to hold in there. I think they're talking their book, which is fine, by the way. Everybody talks their book. Because they should. But it's no coincidence that Blackstone has gone from 147 down to 92-ish on the back of a housing market that's gotten a little squishy. If you think rates are not going substantially higher from here and this housing market can sort of muddle along, Blackstone is a screaming buy at current levels. Coming up, a surge in big pharma. Some top names in the space hitting all-time highs. So which stocks are worth tapping into? Our traders have their picks ahead. But first, chip options, one semi, bucking the tough tech trends today. So are there even more gains ahead? More on that action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Qualcomm finishing the green today. The chipmaker winning a major legal battle after the Supreme Court declined Apple's bid to revive its patent dispute with the company. And options traders think there may be even bigger gains ahead. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, we saw 1.6 times the average daily call volume calls outpacing puts by about two to one. The most active options were the weekly 130 strike calls. We saw over 9,600 of those trading for about $1.60 a contract. That suggests those options traders believe that there's at least 3.5% upside in Qualcomm by the end of this week compared to today's closing price. All right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Guy? Yes, Mel. You are just talking about Qualcomm. On CNBC's Fast Money, 5 o'clock Monday through Friday, we talked about, I think, last week, the stock, I want to say, was trading at 118-ish. And we pointed out that, listen, this has done a round trip on valuation. You got to love it at less than 10 times forward earnings. And it's bounced since. I still think there's room in Qualcomm 
into earnings, and then it'll report, I think, until July 27th, thereabouts. So you stay with this one, Melms. All right. From, uh, Mike Co. thanks for more Options Action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, tarmac troubles, airline stocks under pressure as companies continue to slash flights ahead of the July 4th weekend. For any of these names, buys right here. We'll get some answers. Um, the first, Pharma Favorites, a number of stocks posting fresh all-time highs today. Which names are worth holding here? And by the way, we're watching Nike shares decline in the after-hour session. They're down by more than 2%. We'll get the very latest on that conference call when we come back. Stay tuned. another check on shares of Nike. The stock taking a big leg lower in just the last few minutes, down by more than 3%. The company saying, in part, elevated ocean freight and logistics costs continue to dampen near-term profitability in North America. They're also talking about margins, which seems to be disappointing. Karen, what do you make of this all? Yeah, well, there's one thing in the release that talked about uh, um, inventory obsolescence reserves, which sounds like they're just going to lower the price. That It seemed to primarily focus in um, greater China. But I, this this is problematic. Last year, what was so great for all the retailers was they were just they were able to price without any discounts at all. So the margins were big. So if Nike's having this problem, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that others are going to as well. Yeah, this seems like a very low quality quarter. At first, it was trading up a few percent based on the fact it wasn't a disaster. The guidance, uh, more information that comes out looks worse. They uh, favorable tax rate. I think they're guiding down, you know, revenue um, expectations for the full year. This could be a moving target. And that's another thing I think it's really important as we think about what guidance. There's so many inputs right now that seem to be headwinds. I think companies are going to try to eke it out. There's no reason to buy, try to be a, um, you know, a hero. hero is right. Except Brian say. Cornell wants to be a hero. I mean, he was just talking last week about how things look great in the back half of the year and that, you know, everybody's going to be Halloween partying and <laughs> trick-or-treating and all of that. I mean, it's who do you believe in this space, the thing? I think it depends on the area, right? I mean, I think ultimately a lot of your retail, retailers are going to get hit a lot harder and you are seeing clearly the supply chain issues are going to continue to be a problem for them. So um, I think the question is how long term. So if you're a longer term buyer, maybe you take advantage of this. But I agree. I think some of these are going to continue to affect them in the shorter term. So you might want to proceed with some caution. Karen, are you worried about Lulu having some of the same issues? Well, Lulu is much more U.S.-centric by a mm-hmm. lot um, than, than Nike. So I think that not as much. I'm not. Although the one thing about Lulu, the, the P.E. is higher. But just your target question, which I think is a great one, that P.E. is significantly lower. Is it right. low enough? I hope so because I'm long. But it's 12, 13 versus um, Nike at 24.5 and Lulu at 30. Okay. Big Cat Pharma stock surging today with Eli Lilly, Bristol Myers, and Merck touching new all-time highs. The XLV healthcare ETF also continuing to recoup some losses in today's session, but still down 2% this month. So can pharma keep up the gains? Guy? Yes. You know, we do this show each night, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, and K-Fine in 09, if you recall that yes. slogan that we had on Tuesday, I believe, <laughs> when Merck was trading 84 and a half, she said, Merck's too cheap here. And that basically was the bottom. Look at it today. It shouldn't trade in north of 95. But all these stocks, to me, are in play. Why? Valuations are still compelling, without question. There's some M&A activity. Look at a name like Amgen, which is just too cheap on valuation. Lily's been a name we've mentioned theoretically for years here, continues to make all-time highs. And Bristol-Myers breaking out for the first time in years. So good for K-Fine. I think you absolutely stay with Big Cap Pharma. 
Yeah, I, th I completely agree here. I think this is going to be a wonderful opportunity. It's something they can continue to do well. And I think this is something, to your point, the valuations look attractive regardless of where we're going, right? So if we are able to get through the um, this period without a recession, I think these can do well. But also for in a recessionary period, these tend to do well either way. So I think it's actually a really good play. Um, I do like of these names. I would actually look at Merck. I think they have some really good, um, really strong balance sheets and really good drugs there that are going to continue to improve their revenue, again, regardless of where we're going, which is a good play. Karen, you had something? I do. I have a question for Guy. First, thanks, oh, okay. Guy, for remembering a good one. The question, Remember, though, like, is, like a, like a so Merck, trade, uh, Merck traded up to a high intraday, intra, our all-time high, and then actually closed lower than that. Does that trouble you? It, you know, it's a great point. It did that actually the last time we traded, I think, north of 90. I think it was, you know, a few weeks ago. We had that pretty precipitous pullback, and it happened again uh, six or so months ago when it traded north of 80, pulled back to 64. So you've seen these fits and starts without question. I just happen to think the franchise, to Courtney's point, is just undervalued here. Some M&A activity, the CGen deal, I think that's the name of the company, is going to be pretty interesting. So I totally get what you're saying, but I think you stay the course here in this name. Coming up, JetBlue upping their offer for Spirit Airlines. We'll bring you the details right after the break. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a new development in the M&A battle for Spirit Airlines. Let's get to Phil LeBeau for the latest. Phil. Melissa, JetBlue is back again with another offer for Spirit to consider after Spirit rejected JetBlue on Friday night, picking Frontier instead. Here is the new offer from JetBlue. Basically, three things to keep in mind. They are now offering an accelerated payment of $2.50 per share once shareholders approve it. It previously was a payment of a buck fifty per share, increasing also the reverse breakup fee to $400 million. Previously, it was $350 million. And they're also offering what they're calling an accelerated monthly ticking uh, shareholder benefit, if you will. Ten cents a share, a monthly dividend starting in January 23, all the way through until the deal gets formally approved by regulators. That's the latest JetBlue offer. Will it be enough to top uh, what Frontier has offered, which was enough for Spirit to say yes? We talked with the Frontier CEO this morning on Squawk Box. Here's what he had to say. From a consideration perspective, you know, the Spirit deal with Frontier is 50 to $61 uh, in, in value for their shareholders once they benefit from the 500 energies and get back to normal multiples. And the JetBlue, you know, given it's a dead end on it from an antitrust perspective, all you're getting is the, is the reverse termination fee. So it's $3 versus 50 to 60. It's pretty simple math. It may be simple math to Barry Biffle. The question is whether or not this now makes Spirit once again have to say, OK, we'll take this under consideration. And do they go forward, Melissa, with the shareholder vote on Thursday? That is a vote on whether or not to approve the latest offer from Frontier. It's not a vote of, hey, I like JetBlue more than Frontier. It's simply a straight, do you want to go with the Frontier bid or not? We'll wait and see whether or not Spirit and Frontier have anything to say about this latest offer from JetBlue. Melissa, back to you. Wow. Uh, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, uh, the stock's moving right now in the after-hour session, Karen, maybe no surprise, but this sort of tells you that maybe Frontier will not end up being the winner in all of this because that stock is rising also. Yeah, right. So you have short covering there. This is really kind of a crazy deal. Airline deals <laughs> in general are so difficult uh, you know, even though I don't 
Vizcarv isn't my main game anymore. It's intriguing to watch. This is really interesting. So if you're the proxy solicitor, you got to be calling all the big shareholders and say, what are you going to do? And if they get the sense they're going to they're going to turn down the frontier deal, they're going to have to delay the meeting again. All right. Guy, what do you think about doesn't, this action? Spirit it's, Airlines doesn't trade. It doesn't. Tra it should be trading better than it, it is. It should like, be. Right. I yeah. mean, significantly better, like north of 28 better. And it's sort of meandering here at 23 and a half. So it's, something doesn't make sense. To Karen's point about risk arbitrage, I would actually take a shot being long spirit here. Mm. Up next, final trades. for the final trade, Karen Feinerman. Yes, as Guy brought up at the top of the show, the OIH has been terrible. I do think we're going to see a convergence again of oil versus the OIH. So long, OIH. Dan Nathan. Wow, that would mean that I agree with Karen because I like the large integrated oh, no. here after that. But I know, oh no, <laughs> I'll take the XLE here at 70. <laughs> Courtney. Actually, we were just talking about airlines. I actually still think there's some opportunity we have there. I'd look at Delta, one with your stronger balance sheets. Guy. I just want the fans to know, before the playoffs started, Mel said to me, Colorado's going to win the Stanley Cup in six games. I don't know who they're playing. Unbelievable Qualcomm, Mel. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.